Well, good morning again, and welcome to everybody who is worshiping online with us. We're so glad that you are a part of our service and our church family this morning. We are kicking off a brand new sermon series all on the Sermon of, of on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, I would argue, pound for pound, word for word, is the greatest collection of wisdom and teaching ever assembled in the history of the world. It's two chap- three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, and every line, every verse could have its own like sermon built around it. We're going to try to do it in six weeks. So this morning is going to kind of serve as a primer, as just kind of like a, an intro to set up a little bit of the context about why this sermon or this collection of teachings is crucial to our understanding, not just of kind of Jesus' time in ministry, but ultimately about what it means to follow him and what it means to be a Christian, truly. It's kind of the, the guidebook, the beginner's manual for what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like to live here as heaven was on earth. Now, it's kind of a tall order, But I think it's doable. But what it's going to take is like a little bit of openness to maybe other ways that you've heard this before. See, this is because it's so influential, because this kind of collection of teachings that Jesus shares is so famous, uh, there's been lots of commentary on it. There's been lots of teaching and sermons on it. And so, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at it in a slightly different lens throughout this series because I think it really helps us understand uh, a greater depth than what was kind of immediately on the surface when maybe you've heard this in other instances. Now, one common misconception is that the Sermon on the Mount is just one sermon. This was Jesus got up on a hill, he sat down, and then everybody started taking notes about what he said. And he kept talking, and he kept talking, and he kept talking. My guess is you've had that experience here one Sunday where you're like, wow, this is kind of like the Sermon on the Mount, not in like depth, in like theological insight, but like they just keep talking. Like, come on, this is not one long sermon. If it was, it would have like broken the brains of the disciples who heard it kind of in that original moment. It challenges conventional norm at the time. It establishes new ways of thinking about the world, and it would have really troubled and upset people to such a degree that uh, I don't know that people literally could have handled it. Like, that sounds like hyperbole, and it sounds like pastor talk, but this is one of those things that, do you ever have those moments when you hear a bit of wisdom or you hear a bit of truth, and it just, like, like unsettles your soul? Like, you just have to wrestle with it for a moment. You have to, like, walk away, and you have to think about it, and then you talk about it, and then you, like, start to, like, try to poke holes in it because it, surely that can't be true. And then as you test it and as you challenge it, you start to realize that all of your kind of challenges to it fall flat, and it actually seems to stand up and to hold water, and it, and it ends up reshaping and reframing the way that maybe you think about some part of your life or some category of your life or the way that you view all of life. Have you ever had those moments where you've come across some bit of information or wisdom or truth? My hope is that over the next six weeks, you'll have that again and again and again, because that's truly what this Sermon on the Mount does is it gives us a whole different framework to understand what it means to be human, what it means to follow Jesus, and what it means for us to reprioritize literally everything in our life. And I 
couldn't think of a better kind of series and a better group of teachings for us to walk through during the season of Lent than the Sermon on the Mount for this very reason. You see, Lent is that 40-day period of kind of preparation, of refocusing, reprioritizing, returning back to God, back into a kind of deeper, stronger, healthier relationship with God. It means letting go of the things that we've been distracted by and refocusing and reprioritizing back on the things that are truly supposed to matter. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It reminds us of what really matters and what doesn't, where we can find value and significance in our life and where it's actually hollow and absent and missing. And so I'm going to kind of set up the sermon today and then the next six weeks we'll kind of unpack each of the different parts and each of the different categories. Now, I think what's really helpful to understand about the Sermon on the Mount is one, where it's placed in the Gospel of Matthew and one, where the Gospel of Matthew is placed in this kind of the scope of all of Scripture. So what you see in the first four chapters of Matthew is Matthew setting up who Jesus is, where he's from, what his life looks like, what he's about, It establishes Jesus' credibility and authority as the fulfillment of all of Jewish prophecy. Now, Matthew is writing the Gospel of Matthew for an explicitly Jewish audience. And so he writes it within language that would help them connect to their own history and their own lineage. And so there's all of these things that you see that Matthew does to kind of create this parallel between Jesus and this other really influential figure in Jewish history named Moses. And so he kind of creates these parallels, these illusions, to set up Jesus as this new Moses, as this new figure who would lead God's people into the promised land. Now, this time it doesn't have to happen to be a physical geographical area, but it's more of this spiritual reality. So, of course, what ends up happening is, just like Moses... Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to receive the instruction from God on how to live. We find Jesus going up to the top of a mountain and then giving instruction for us on how to live. Now, dial it back a little bit. If you remember, almost two years ago when we did that 12, 14-week series on the book of Exodus, if you missed that, yes, we did a 12, 14-week series on the book of Exodus. And, you're like, that, and if you're the one person that's like, that sounds really interesting... Go back and check it out. It was really interesting, I think, to maybe me and Allie. But the whole point of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments to give to the people was these were instructions, these were a manual, a guidebook, a rule for how to live in such a way that it would create heaven on earth. It was a different way to live than everyone else around them was living. Here are these instructions. If you follow this, you will be different than everyone else around you. And it will be unique. It will be distinct. You'll be like a light to the nations, to all of the other people. In the same way, this is what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying the same purpose of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments is contained in in this group of teachings. Now, before Jesus gets to the Sermon on the Mount, we see kind of him setting up his ministry. What Jesus does is he kind of goes through and he's baptized and then he goes to the wilderness for 40 days and then he kind of sets up camp in this area outside of Galilee and he begins to teach and he begins to gather his disciples. 
but they synthesize and summarize all of Jesus' preaching and teaching in this one line. And this comes out of Matthew 4, right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount. This is what it says. From that time on, they've kind of done all this setup. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, there's three little parts in this that I think is important for us to understand that will hopefully kind of create some framework to understand better the Sermon on the Mount. It's this first word, repent. Now, repent is a command. It's a directive. It doesn't just mean confess or ask for forgiveness. It's, it's more robust. It's more, you know, exhaustive than that. What it literally means is if you're moving in this direction in your life, you stop, you turn around, and you go the other way. Now, that requires some confession of the wrong direction in which your life had been moving. It asks for forgiveness for that. It requires a bit of reparation on your part to repair any of the damage that you've done by moving in this direction. And then it requires a shift and move in this way. A different way to understand that word repent means change your hearts and your lives. So another way to read the scripture is change your hearts and your lives for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the next part that we have to look at is that phrase, the kingdom of heaven. That's probably the phrase that's most representative of the gospel of Matthew and most important for us to kind of think about as we get ready to look at the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven is not like up in the sky or in outer space or this place in the clouds where God lives. The kingdom of heaven is the place, both physical and kind of spiritual, where God is king, where people follow God's rules, and where the world works as God intended. That's what it means. The kingdom of heaven is the place where God is king, where people follow God's rules, and the world and life works as God intended. And so you could see how there, will be, there could be instances in life where everything is just as God meant it to be. That moment when you see someone sacrifice themselves for somebody else, we're starting to get flooded with all these news stories over the last several weeks about all of these incredible acts of kindness and generosity and you know, hospitality, welcoming people who have kind of been displaced by what's happening uh, in the East, but instances like that that warm your heart, that you're like, oh, that bring you to tears, that move you in such a dramatic way, both kind of abroad and domestic, all of those moments are little glimpses of what Matthew is talking about here and what Jesus is trying to get at here. It's when everything works as it was supposed to work. When people aren't focused on their own priorities, their own prerogatives, their own values and self-interest, when they live in such a way that carries out and fulfills what God asked them to do. That's the kingdom of heaven. In the same way, uh, it kind of functions like a seed because there is an aspect to the kingdom of heaven that isn't quite yet. It, it's, it exists, but it doesn't quite exist. So if you take a seed, any type of seed, just imagine a seed, it exists, it's real. But there is a greater fulfillment, there is a greater future for that seed. It's going to grow and blossom and bloom into something bigger, greater, fuller that carries an even larger essence of what that seed's all about. Does that make sense? 
So it's a, a now and not yet. Every seed is like that. People are like that. You take these beautiful little children. There's a now and there's a not yet at who they're going to grow into and who they're going to become. What Jesus talks about with the kingdom of heaven and what Matthew kind of writes about through his words is the kingdom of heaven is the same way. It exists now, but it doesn't quite yet exist in its fullest sense, which is why we have to look at that, that last part, has come near. There's this um, kind of pending, in-process nature to this reality of how people live according to God's rules, with God as king, and life is God, as God intended. I think kind of a great parallel to this idea that the kingdom of heaven has come near is, has anybody ever kind of read that series of Chronicles of Narnia? Or you've watched the movies maybe? It's one of my favorite series. C.S. Lewis writes these beautiful books that have a lot of parallel to scripture. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, kind of the first installment that kind of gives you entry into this world of Narnia, what you see happen is that the whole world has kind of been taken over by the white witch and there's this curse that has turned the entire land of Narnia into like this wintry place. It says it's winter every day, but never Christmas. Like, doesn't that kind of paint the picture of like, you know, it barely rains and our city shuts down. So you could imagine that it's winter every day, but never Christmas. It's just this cold, dead reality. But then as you start to read through the story about Narnia, there begins to be this phrase that emerges that speaks and sparks a little bit of hope. It says, Aslan is on the move. It's this phrase that reminds you that there is something better coming. Aslan being kind of the, the hero of the story, this great big lion who is able to kind of personify Jesus in many ways. It speaks to that there is a greater power than the curse that exists over Narnia that is beginning to happen, that's beginning to unfold, is beginning to move towards a fuller existence. And so what you see start to happen in these stories of Narnia is as the ice begins to melt, anywhere kind of a, a bud begins to emerge or birds begin to sing, it speaks of this phrase, Aslan is on the move, signifying that something greater, something better is coming to Narnia. Well, the same thing is true with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Aslan is on the move. There is something that's happening in the world. So that's kind of a bit about kind of the gist of Jesus's message all throughout the gospel of Matthew. And then as we get into this sermon on the mount, what he gives us is an unpacking of how to live into that kingdom. It's an instruction manual for what it looks like to live within the kingdom of heaven, to participate in the kingdom of heaven that has come near. So let's look at the very first verses in this Sermon on the Mount. So starting in Matthew 5, verse 1. Jesus has done a bunch of ministry. He's spread this message, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's healed a bunch of people. And according to the gospel of Matthew, he has gathered his first four disciples. And he gets to this place. And these crowds that have kind of begun to kind of accumulate and to gather around Jesus because of all that he's teaching and healing and doing, he sees them and he goes up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, what you're going to see throughout the Sermon on the Mount is this distinction between two groups of people, the crowds 
and the disciples. And kind of this concept of disciple is different than our understanding of what a disciple is. If, you, if I was kind of to take an informal poll, my guess would be a disciple, we would say, is somebody who has some amount of knowledge about Jesus, some amount of knowledge about who he is or what he taught or what he was about. But really, back in that day, disciple was far more intensive. It included far more. That word disciple in Hebrew was Talmud, or disciples would be Talmudin. It was this group of people that devoted their lives to following a rabbi, a teacher around, learning everything they could about how to think and how to act just like the rabbi. It would be the most extreme version of internship, apprenticeship, shadowing that you could imagine. I mean, literally, they would stand and walk right next to the rabbi's side, wherever the rabbi went, not knowing where the rabbi was going to go, because at any moment, there could be a teaching opportunity. There could be a moment where the rabbi gave some insight, gave some pearl of wisdom that you were supposed to soak up because it partially would unlock some ability to understand the world as they understood the world. It would inform not just your thoughts, but how to act on those thoughts. Now, my guess is you have some people in your life who think that they're these type of people and you should be soaking up every ounce of wisdom that they have to offer all of these pearls of insight into life. But it was truly like this. People, kind of the model and the concept was people would show up, these, these potential disciples would show up to these rabbis and say, may I follow you? That was the request that the disciples would ask the rabbi if they could follow them. And the rabbi would determine the worthiness the potential, the ability of these disciples to emulate and to be just like the rabbi. And then at some point, these disciples would have gained enough understanding of what it meant to think and act like the rabbi that they would then eventually be able to go off onto their own and emulate these teachings and perhaps gather other disciples under themselves uh, who would want to learn how to think and act in the way that they did. Now, Jesus kind of turns this upside down. Jesus doesn't wait for disciples to come to him. If you kind of read through Matthew chapter 4, he goes in search of disciples. And he doesn't, they don't ask him, can I follow you? Jesus says, come and follow me. And so he has this group of four, at least at this point, who are soaking up every ounce that Jesus has to say. They're trying to understand what it means to think and what it means to act like the rabbi. And then there's the crowd. These are people who hear Jesus' words. They understand what he's saying, perhaps, but there's a difference between their relationship to the rabbi and the disciples' relationship to the rabbi. And the biggest difference is disciples, they put into practice what they've seen the rabbi teach. Crowds just hear what the rabbi has to say. And so as you kind of work through and as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, the choice before us is really a simple one. It's one that will exist all of Lent. It's which one are we going to be? Are we going to be the crowd that just hears Jesus' words and then doesn't really recognize or identify their relevance to our life? Or are we going to become a disciple? Are we going to see the value, the implication, the significance of what Jesus has to teach us? And are we going to be willing to work to apply them to every aspect of our life? Is it just going to be like, oh, that sounds nice, that works I'm glad for that hour that I was there. Or is it, no, this is going to change the way that I think and feel about every category of my life. 
And what I think exists in Jesus' words is an invitation for all of us to come and follow him, to take that invitation seriously. You see, what he does at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he begins with this group of people, this crowd gathered around, but these disciples who sit near. I think the disciples are the primary audience. I don't think Jesus is teaching, kind of stepping up to this megaphone to all of these people gathered around. He's having a conversation with those who've requested to learn how to think and act like Jesus, and he's teaching them these insights into life, these insights into recognizing God's existence in every aspect of our life. And then at the end of his teaching, at the end of Matthew 7, Jesus kind of creates this dichotomy. And we sang a bit of the words a second ago, but he says, those who hear these words of mine and do them and put them into practice and to live them out. And then he creates this analogy about wise builders who build their house on the rock versus another category of people. These people who hear these words of mine and they don't put them into practice. And so this Lent, I just want to extend the invitation that Jesus extends to all of us. So will you come and follow? Will you go on this journey with us to take seriously the words and the teachings of Jesus? Will you allow them to penetrate your hearts and your minds and manifest in your life to change the way that you prioritize every aspect of your life, your relationships, your values, where you spend your time, your efforts, your energies, your resources? Will you be open to his teachings and to his words to allow them to unsettle you, to challenge you, to convict you, to inspire and motivate you that the kingdom of heaven truly is near and that we can live in it today? My prayer for us as a church is that we would we would accept that invitation and we would be willing to go on that journey with Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll celebrate communion together. Gracious Lord, we are grateful for your invitation that you extend to each one of us, for the opportunity to recognize that you are inviting us into a journey to rethink and to reevaluate everything about our lives to reprioritize it in a way that acknowledges that you are king, that convicts us to live by your rules, by your values, and that allows heaven to exist here on earth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.